0: This week on Death of the Reader, a puzzle with 14 authors of the Detection Club, the elusive yet highly acclaimed solution of Agatha Christie herself, and we speak to Simon Brett on what this Detection Club is. Stick around. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. This is Flex and Herds bringing you Death of the Reader, your Murder Mystery World Tour. These Mysterious Tunes brought to you by Paul Meter, our audio extraordinaire. Today, Herds, you're Mm -hmm. tackling The Floating Admiral, written by The Detection Club. Well, thank you, Flex. Wait a second, The Detection Club? Who's the author? Well, I was hoping you'd read the introduction at the beginning of the book so you would, you know, go into this with a bit of understanding.
1: I have some understanding, but I think I'd like to explain to us what's
0: going on here. So, part of the Murder Mystery World Tour gimmick is that we're taking you around the world, connecting author to author, following their inspirations... Their touchstones, everything that led them to be who they are. Mm-hmm. Last book we looked at was *The Three Taps* by Ronald Knox, and we've decided to branch out to Knox's compatriots, companions, contemporaries in the Detection Club—a group
1: of some of the most
0: prolific authors of the Golden Age
1: of Detective Fiction. Yeah, and we'll be starting with *The Floating Admiral*, which uh, is a pretty, a pretty tricky one, from what I understand. We're doing the uh, the first four chapters just to kick us off for this episode. And yeah, the Detection Club, it's a group of like-minded murder mystery enthusiasts, uh, along with Knox and Agatha Christie and some others you may or may not be familiar with, just getting together and writing murder mysteries and challenging each other, which I think is really cool. So, The
0: Floating Admiral is a very interesting story, and you might have heard me speak to Andrew Popel about it. It's a story where each chapter was written by a different author...
1: And none of them told each other what the answer was meant to be. So it's basically a game of Chinese whispers, but with the murder mystery. Yes, it That's is. excellent. And apparently I'm being cho- charged to, to solve this thing. Despite the fact that it's being written by multiple authors, none of whom know what the answer is, and everyone's trying to, like, figure out what it is while they're writing it? Is that is that what's happening? Yeah, I've thrown you a bit of a curveball here. Yeah. You
0: awarded me one point for the solving <laughs> of the three taps Can by add Knox. Can I more
1: points? How many chapters are there? Yeah. How many chapters are there? For every one I get right, do well, I get a point. Well, there's twelve
0: chapters. The I conclusion get points, the then. prologue. I mm-hmm, get mm-hmm. um, oh, I'll give you. I'll give you one whole point for it. You know what? I'll take it. <laughs> this is the best <laughs> I'm going to get on this show. Actually, you know what? You know what? I will say, and we'll talk about this coming up a bit later in the show. But several of the reviews, both modern and contemporary, of this novel have said that Agatha Christie's solution to the story is worth the sales price of the book alone. Oh, so if you can get. The official solution and Agatha Christie's solution, you can have three points. Oh, boy.
1: And that's part of this, isn't it? She's chapter four, isn't she? She's chapter four. Oh, I guess we'll have to see how I go later on then. My goodness. (laughs) Looking forward to it. Yeah, so it's one of these very, very strange things. You
0: think when you have a puzzle, you'd like to know that it can be solved. Mm -hmm. But in this case, we have a puzzle where we don't know if we can solve it. It's almost by premise against the rules of Knox where the mm. author should be letting you know that it's fair and solvable we
1: do also have that prologue which apparently was written after the rest of the book was put together yes so there might be some clues in there I hope I'm banking a lot on those the prologue
0: by GK Chesterton and the conclusion by Anthony Berkeley mm. uh the two things that were written with the full knowledge of the book so you've got a you've got a little helping hand there with that introduction yeah I'm hoping
1: I have some thoughts on that but what we'll-
0: it's that later. the The description of G.K. Chesterton's prologue is typically paradoxical. It's great, so you you don't want to take that with uh, without your you know helping of salt. Your, your powder keg full of salt. Is yeah, that
1: like- <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the the club itself, it was kind of a secret society right did they like sell those books i don't really know much about it they did sell those books the
0: society was more or less secret as i understand it in terms of how to join and gain membership yeah. and what they actually did you know now it's all out in the open searchable on wikipedia as simon brett in the edition that we're reading mentions in his uh in his foreword speaking of that we have simon brett himself former chairman of the detection club on the show a bit Mm. later. So stick around for that.
1: Yeah. He reckons it was founded in 1928, which is, you know, it's a pretty old society still be around.
0: Yeah. I think that when you approach this story and you think of the detection club, it's probably worth keeping in mind that this was like a bunch of friends with very differing opinions and views and writing styles who just like to meet for dinner and discuss murder mysteries.
1: Yeah. Well, it definitely has that feeling of fun to it. And that's something that's part of the foreword as well. uh, That's, the – something that was kind of – it's kind of been lost in in more modern murder mysteries, that feeling of fun, that feeling of, you know, we we can throw some of the, the realistic rules, you know, some of the drama of crime fiction out the window and go for something a bit more lighthearted, uh, even in the subject of murder, as the story is. Well, I wouldn't even necessarily say it's about lightheartedness. I think it's more
0: just about – the story being secondary to the game.
1: For sure, yeah. I
0: was particularly impressed, aside from the prologue, which is very much out of character with the rest of the book, but (laughs) with intention, mind you. Mm. Uh, But I was very much impressed with how all four opening chapters seem to fit and flow together yeah there wasn't any moment in the first four where I really felt like oh that's where they switched authors you know even though it did tell us
1: one of the um most interesting writing techniques that I noted that I know that I noticed after every chapter um all of the chapters end on a cliffhanger or the introduction of a character or something that's sort of like a throw to the next writer like oh, and this is when we... I can't think off the top of my head, but, like, this is when, you know, we're going to talk to the the niece of the Admiral that we're going to go to their house, and then the next chapter is about that. Um, And in particular, jumping from the second to the third chapter, where uh, we've we've had our lovely chat with the niece, and then the is like, I just want you to stay in the house, and then she's just, she's just run away in a car, which is fantastic. Like, the way that we, we kind of flow from chapter to chapter isn't just, this is the end, and then it's a new story. There's... There's something, there's a call to action that's kind of thrown at the end of each chapter that we have to grab onto.
0: Yeah, I think it's very much worth reading the introduction by Dorothy L. Sayers before you get to the story, mm. because they went into this this game of writing a novel split between a group of people. Um, with a set of rules on how they were going to approach it. Like, yep. one author could not throw in unnecessarily challenging details purely for the purpose of making it more difficult. Whether or not they succeeded <laughs> in would, that is an entirely different matter.
1: I, I feel like that's definitely something that happened. We'll get into that. I mean, you've read the whole thing. You have a yeah. better idea of the, than I do, but I definitely feel like there are some clues that are thrown in that kind of contradict or completely reframe previous scenes, which is like... A little bit of a throw, but yeah. you know.
0: But I do think that that was probably part of their game plan, is that each chapter so. was meant to end yep. with, this is the puzzle piece that you were meant to pick yep. up on.
1: yep. I also like that uh, because most murder mystery novels, you tend to have that flow of chapters because you start off with the introduction there's the big murder scene and then there's this kind of slower introduction to the characters and then things pick up again when complications start to rise. And then it, you know, peters out as the solution is resolved and the detective figures everything out, whatever. But uh, the thing that I really enjoyed about this novel is how every chapter, because it's written by a different author, They maintain that intensity all the way through. And I feel like that is a huge selling point um, if you want to, like, recommending it to someone. If you want to read something where every chapter has a significant clue and a different way of approaching the mystery, this is the one.
0: Yeah, it very nicely follows where your headspace is as a reader because each of the authors was trying to figure out what the hell was going on at the same time you are. So you're never left behind by the author that you might be in one that is written by a single author.
1: Yeah, they're almost trying to, like, I could imagine that the authors are trying to puzzle out the previous one, the previous chapters, while also pushing their own agenda, in a sense, which is a really fun game of uh, of tag, almost.
0: Yeah, one thing that it does tell you in Dorothy I'll say, is introduction is that at the end of the book, the appendices feature the solutions from every single author as to what they thought the outcome was meant to be. I am
1: looking forward to reading those immensely because I hope, I hope that like half of them are like two sentences and that's it. And the others are like these full essays on all these little details that go all the way back around and everything makes sense at the end.
0: Now the victim for the floating
1: admiral is in fact the floating admiral. What? That's crazy that the admiral would be floating and also be dead. Yes, Ad- Admiral
0: Peniston. Which, if you have children in the back seat of your car, is spelt the way they think. Oh my goodness, that's inappropriate. It is very. Uh, <laughs> also, a real place in England. I oh, found cool. out in researching. Now, the admiral is found in a situation which, as with many a murder mystery, simply does not make sense. Mm-hmm. He's found in a boat in the river, stabbed through the heart in a large overcoat. the uh, The rope down to the boat has been cut. Obviously, foul play is involved. And he's found by this uh, strange gentleman named Nettie Ware. I just want to say I'm thankful it's not a locked room mystery. Because- that is a very interesting detail about this story. <laughs> um, the locked room is an absolute staple is of a the murder star- mystery genre. Literally. And I guess you could extrapolate on this being a locked room by some of the clues but that's a very loose definition to take
1: well the, the details that we have is that he's on a boat and it's the vicar's boat so like somebody had to put him there exactly <laughs> you know so there are still some details that we can roll with immediately at the vicar anyway we'll speak a bit more about those solutions as we press on in the
0: story but right now I'm very excited we have Simon Brett author of the foreword of the edition of the book we're reading acclaimed author in his own right and former chairman of the detection club up next
1: You're listening to 2 cr on 107.3, and this is Flex and Herds with Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. Today we have a very special guest with us, uh, Mr. Simon Brett, from all the way over in the great England itself, once president of the Detection Club. Simon, how are you doing today? I
2: am very good, thank
1: you. That's excellent. That's excellent. Uh, our resident Flex here has actually read one of your novels. I, I hear it's uh, it's called A Decent Interval, so this is a real treat for him.
0: Yeah, when I was first getting into detective fiction and going from a casual reader of it to a you know keen solver of the stories, some of the Charles Parrish novels were the first ones that I <laughs> got into to actually uh, figure out how the genre works. So it's very exciting to get the
1: opportunity to speak to you, Simon.
2: Oh well, you're clearly a man of, of discrimination.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I look for—I look forward to reading the novel myself when I can get around to it. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you—you're quite the writer yourself. Uh, you've been penning murder mysteries since 1965 uh, with Cast in Order of Disappearance. I'd just like to ask why? Yeah, did you actually s- 1975. 1975, 75 rather. Yes, indeed. Yes. I'm, why did I'm, you? I'm quite old, but not that old. <laughs> 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 why did you start writing initially, Simon?
2: Um, it came directly out of my day job at that time, which mm. was being a radio producer, would you believe? Oh, I would. And I was working at the BBC, and I was delegated to produce a series of adaptations of the Dorothy L. Sayers, Lord Peter Wimsey stories. And um, I'd always been a bit frightened of mystery fiction up until mm. that point. You know, I thought you needed a computerized brain to work out the plot. Um, but in fact, as I worked very closely with the guy who was adapting the book, a writer called Chris Miller, mm. I got less frightened of the genre um, because I found, well, we found some lovely things like great big holes in Dorothy Elso's plots, which was very encouraging. <laughs> um, but also I found that character and dialogue were at least as important as the plot. And so I thought, well, I don't know whether I can do uh, plots. And there are still newspaper critics of this opinion, but um, I think I can do character and dialogue. And that's what got me into writing the first of my Charles Parris actor-detective
1: murder mysteries. Yeah, and actually, you mentioned earlier that you were a radio producer. I did some research. I, I found that you actually hosted a radio panel called Foul Play, in which you... you I did, yes. Yeah, yeah a which i like sort of tell us about that.
2: Mystery. Panel show. which uh, ran for a couple of series. It was enormous fun. I mm. mean, it was the way it worked. I, I chaired. It, well, I wrote it and chaired it. And mm. we had two very clever uh, impro actors, who I'd sort of, you know, I'd give them the brief of what their character had done, and then they were, they were cross-examined by uh, two other crime writers, and uh, the format worked very well.
1: Uh, just one last question: uh, How can we copy that idea successfully, Simon? <laughs>
2: Oh, by negotiation with my agent for a huge fee for the format.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> of course. Uh, we'll be on we'll be on the phone as soon as we're off with you. <laughs> okay. Now, I wanted to turn this a little bit towards the detection club, which you are the uh the president of.
2: Yes, I, I was the president of. I've, i gave it up about um four years ago. But, yeah. Uh, to a younger man called Martin Edwards. Mm. But uh, no, I was president for fourteen years, so I yeah. I know
0: it fairly well. The uh, the novel that we're covering alongside our chat with you here is the Floating Admiral, which you wrote a foreword oh, yeah. to, um, and we had we had lots of fun picking apart that mystery and seeing you know how the various authors constructed their different parts of the puzzle. Yep. Um, but I wanted to ask, in your f- forward, you noted that the club has opened its doors a lot broader since the initial days of the Detection Club to the genres of crime fiction at large, whereas back in the beginning it was something of a secret society. What do you think yes, led to it, that it, widening it, of the gate?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's because the genre has changed so much, and in fact, um, a a few years ago we did a sort of sequel to the floating admiral called would you believe the sinking admiral um which was written by 14 current members of the detection club and that was much more difficult because i can and i know because i edited it because back in well it was published about 1930 uh, the floating admiral and then although they were very different the contributors like Else, Agatha Christie, uh, E.C. Bentley, um, D.K. Chesterton, although they were different in their styles, they were writing very much the same kind of whodunit mystery. So they could literally write a chapter and pass it on to the next one to sort of sort out the plotting. Whereas it was a much more complex operation when I did it, because you know there were legal thrillers, there were financial thrillers, there were um, all kinds of different subgenre of the, uh, the the mystery.
0: And do you think that the the broader scope that crime fiction has these days ultimately makes a better story, or do you think it's more just the fact that it's a reflection of the times?
2: I think there are a lot of. Um, reasons why. I mean, we look back to the Golden Age, which was the 20s and the 30s. And um, I I think what happened was the Second World War was very important in the development of of the mystery because up until then, you know, a lot of the classics of the Golden Age, as it's called, were really very playful, you know, and they they were jokey about murder and death. Um, and I think the Second World War, when, you know, very few families didn't know somebody who was a casualty, uh, that made it slightly less tasteful. And also, I think all the good sort of, you know, clockwork quote, quote, toy plots had been done and the mystery had to change. And the other thing, which I think was very significant in um, English uh, mystery, was the end of the death penalty, um, where suddenly, you know, it was grace in the days of Agatha Christie where uh, Ecu Poirot could gather everyone into the library at the end and say, you know, you couldn't have done it because you were wearing the wrong side of, size of trousers and you couldn't have done it because of your blood group and all this. Therefore, the murderer was you, and he points the finger at somebody, and the reader knows that that person is going off to the gallows. You know, end of story. Suddenly, when you don't have a death penalty, you get Sort of lifetime sentences, and you get you know people being released at the end of their sentences, that kind of thing. Um, and I think it became you know, whereas it had been very black and white, it became somebody uh, shades of grey. There might be a title for some kind of book in there. I don't know. <laughs>
0: um, I think particularly what interests me about what you said there was the idea that you know all of the clockwork puzzles had been done clearly there are still modern examples of a cl- like classic detective fiction how do you think that the genre can still innovate on those clockwork puzzles even though so many of the possibilities for the closed room have been done per se
2: i think it's pretty difficult and i have great admiration of for- people who, you know, can come up. I mean, I think I think there are a lot of writers out there who are very good at doing twists, you know, where something is totally unexpected and, you know, as you read, you go, oh, gosh. Um, but I can think of very few that are based on sort of one simple device. I mean, like you know, let us say that the narrator is the murderer. Well, we all know that's been done many times. Um, I mean, the only post-war example I can think that is a really effective uh, twist murder based on one central device uh, is A Kiss Before Dying by R-11, which I think is is that, I won't say what it is, but it's based on one very simple, almost grammatical device. And um, that works brilliantly. And I think people have been trying to replicate that, but not actually with with Mark's success.
0: Yeah, I think uh, particularly looking back on the classic days of detective fiction, we have things like Willard Wright's 27 Rules for uh, the Genre and Ronald Knox's Decalogue of Fair Play for the Genre. are those things still treated with any level of seriousness? I know that originally Knox wrote his rules kind of just poking fun, as you say authors back then did, but is there any is there any attention paid to those structures and forms that were laid out back then in the modern age of crime fiction?
2: I think, uh, I mean, as you say, you know, the the Knox one was very much tongue-in-cheek, but, uh, but I think, I mean, there were good, you know, it did make some points about the clichés or uh, the... <laughs> memes or tropes of the of the genre um, you know in, in a fairly uh, amiable way. I would say the one rule that um, kind of was in there and you should still obey is that the you know if you're doing a murder mystery where it's who done it, you want to know who did it, it is important that the actual perpetrator is introduced fairly early in the book that so you don't suddenly sort of parachute them in in the penultimate chapter. Um, I think that rule still obtains, but most of the others are kind of, you know, were just fun, really.
0: Yeah, I know that there's several stories we've been covering and investigating that have made various deconstructions of their own, of those uh, of those forms of the genre from back in the day. But, Simon, thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful to speak with you about all things of your own writing and the Detection Club. Well, I hope you've all enjoyed hearing from Simon Brett. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, Simon, and I'm a particular keen fan of Charles Parish, and I can't wait to get back into those stories. Uh, you're on 2SCR. This is Death of the Reader. That was Simon Brett, and you're investigating The Floating Admiral. You're on 2SER 107.3. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour, and we are talking about the floating admiral by the Detection Club, discussing chapters 1 to 4. I've read the whole thing. Herds has only read to chapter 4. Mm-hmm. And today, we are going to try and get him to solve it with that information alone. And when I say get him to solve it, I mean quite the opposite. I mean, You mean solve every chapter?
1: individually <laughs> because that's basically how this thing is written it's great it's great i'm looking forward to this guys look i got this in the bag yeah i mean so far already in the story we've had
0: five different authors uh, we're four chapters and a prologue in
2: well you yeah.
0: have a lot
1: of solving to do for very little story it's okay i got this i got this this is my my introduction into the ring i got my mitts on i got my <laughs> i guess if you like my notepad and pen it's very hard to hold those in these mitts but you know what i'll give it my best shot so, yeah, I've got some theories. I've got some thoughts. I think that I'm sticking with my idea that every chapter probably has a different criminal, which uh-huh, is fantastic uh-huh. for me. But I'm going to try and nail down who I think the the, the ultimate killer is. So I'm going to run through my process a little bit here because we got a couple of characters that I find particularly suspicious. That's Ware, that's the Vicar, uh, the Admiral's niece, not daughter, uh, Fitzgerald, and... Um, And that's it. Just those three. Those are the three that I find the most suspicious. I suppose Holland as well.
0: Now, remember, you're going to get bonus points for getting Christy. I will.
1: I will. So I'm going to – I'm still thinking about Holland over there. That's the part that I'm kind of going back and forth. But let me run you through my thought process. So the Vicar – Particularly interesting to me because he's only been in one one chapter really so far. But he is suspicious as heck. He fumbles his words and he doesn't know what he's saying. And when he's asked questions, he's like, yes, the dress was definitely hidden. And no, it wasn't. And it was in the trees, but it wasn't actually. And I could see everything. And the admiral was definitely there. And he wasn't. It was, it's a load of garbage. I think the vicar is an accomplice at the very least.
0: Okay. Uh, you make no mention of the fact that his hat was in the boat. And his hat was in the it boat. It was his boat.
1: That's all, those are also clues that I picked up on. Point is less You don't. Less of fun. You, don't th- you don't think that.
0: You don't think that. That's a little too suspicious.
1: You don't. Think I don't that think so. As an accomplice,
0: he would have been. You know, scared to go out with this plan if Here's it the- was his equipment that was left it's, there.
1: It's entirely possible he's been strong-armed into this, or somebody else is using his equipment. I don't think that it is actually him who killed. Uh, anyone? That's where I'm at right now. I think it's more likely where or uh, or Fitzgerald. Here's here's the other thing.
0: Yeah, is that the de- Detection Club was a group of mostly devout Christians, including including priests. It's true. Do you not think that it would have been against the general modus operandi of the group to frame? a, you know, church man as a guilty party in their own story?
1: Ah, it's, oh, that's a good question, isn't it? That would be very playing against type though, wouldn't it? And, ah, you got me with a good one. I mean, it's possible. I think that that would also be a very fun thing to do, to portray this is when, this is when, you know, a good man goes bad or something like that. Or maybe, as you say, maybe it is the vicar's sons. They're the accomplices. And the vicar is like trying to cover for his kids. Maybe that's what's happening. That's the, that's the twist.
0: You reckon? Yeah, maybe. Who knows? I think I think that that could also possibly explain why the Vickers alibi
1: is so clearly rehearsed. Yes, that was something that I was going to mention. He says, I put my hat on the hat stand at 9.20, and that's exactly when I got here. And don't you worry about where I was at any other time. That's the only time that matters. Um, the way that he talks is just so, like, stilted and, like, I have this. I have this idea in my head. I think he might be trying to cover for his boys, but I'm not 100% on the Vicar. I don't think he's a killer, though. Certainly not in chapter one. Now, Herds, I have entitled this battle The Crux of Christie. Why would you call it that? Because,
0: as I (laughs) mentioned earlier on this day, the Agatha Christie solution to the story is said to be worth the admissions price of the book alone. Yep. Now hurts. Oh, no. Does this to you scream that Agatha Christie's solution that she was thinking of is the best, the most accurate, the least
1: accurate, but most entertaining? Probably that one. It probably means it's as far from the actual truth as you can get. And is probably very complicated. Now, I'm trying to recall. That was just the conversation with Mrs. Mrs. Davies. It was indeed. Yes, it was. It was the mostly conversation chapter. Uh, which was excellent. By the I would way. have entitled it entirely conversation, <laughs> mind you, but not to worry. Yeah. I think because the main piece of information that we kind of learn from that chapter is that uh, the Admiral could not have gone to London. So somebody must have brought in the newspaper and that the Admiral came to the inn where she's at and was all, is Mr. Holland here? And then I don't remember what response he got. It was probably no. And then he he went away. He
0: got the response, which was, we'll go fetch him. And then he said, not the matter. I need to leave anyway. Yes. So, oh, man. And if that, in fact, was the Admiral, he couldn't have been the one lying
1: in the Vicar's boat because he would have been on a train instead. You're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. So it was probably someone else. I mean, there are so few options. It could be the vicar as an accomplice, but I don't think that, like, makes a lot of sense for him to do that. He's a churchman, after all. He would never get involved in murder. Um, I think it's more likely Holland himself, honestly, if I had to pick a character.
0: Um, You don't think that Mrs. Davis would have recognized one of her own patrons?
1: Not if you were wearing a disguise, like a coat or something that the Admiral normally wears.
0: I don't know. Mrs. Davis seems like a pretty (laughs) keen eye in many ways. I
1: suppose. Hmm. I'm trying to recall exact how the timing would line up. Well, that's the thing is that it wouldn't really, would it? Unless there's like, well, unless it's twins, but I don't think, we haven't been prepared for twins at all. We have not been prepared for twins. I will will put that on the table.
0: I'm going to side with, I'm going to side with Father Knox, Knox on this one. Yeah, fair enough. Um, now I I will say that if it was the vicar, Mm -hmm. you know, then he would have been on his way to London by the time that they came to rouse him in the morning to let him know about the crime. Right. If it was Holland, he wouldn't have been able to barge back into the house when we visited there earlier on in the story. If it was Nettie Ware, he was well known to the village as was the first sentence of description of him in the entire story. Mm. What else could it have been other than the vicar's two boys?
1: Standing on each other's shoulders. <laughs> Hold on, do we actually get told? <laughs> That's a one one. Wearing the admiral's coat—it makes so much sense. Uh, but as you say, the keen eye of Mrs. Davies uh, is, is testimony in and of itself. Exactly. She could be lying, I suppose. Um, Does this
0: make you think that there's perhaps a character important to the story who we have not been introduced to yet?
1: Oh, I mean, obviously, we we have like we've been had. A... Hold on, you say that like we haven't had a character introduce us in like every damn chapter. We've had like four so far. However, <laughs> it's going to be as, a new one every chapter. As,
0: as your trusting compatriot, one, uh-huh. would, one would hope that I had presented you an adequate challenge in the first four chapters of the book and thus uh. the people you needed to solve the mystery. So what is this mysterious extra
1: person? I don't know. I don't know. I'm Does this person out. exist I don't at think all? So. There can be no Do mysterious Do you think Mrs. X?
0: Davis is in on the crime and this is her alibi?
1: No, that's insane. I mean, it might be, that'd be pretty fun though. <laughs> I, I think, I think that they called for Mr. Holland and it was probably a male. I at least trust Mrs. Davies as much to figure out as it's a, it's a male individual. Um, so the only reason they could be calling for Mr. Holland would be to either confirm their alibi or to give them something or, you know, interact with them. I think, I think that confirming the alibi of Mr. Holland would probably be the main goal. Um Oh, it's a tough one. Christy, why
0: do you torture me so? Ah, uh, yes. And this uh, is why we have rounded out
1: here. This is no. why we finished on chapter four. You know what? It's fine. I'll give another whack in the next roundabout fight, I suppose. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say it was Holland calling from himself when there was some altercation, but that's, that's not- my final answer I'm coming back for you Chrissy oh boy I'm coming for you alrighty well thank you for joining us
0: on Death of the Reader here on 2 scr 107.3 next week we will be discussing chapters 5 to 8 of The Floating Admiral starting with Inspector Rudge begins to form a theory by John Rowe. oh boy we'll have to see if we
1: can even trust Inspector Rudge's theory I hope we can are you saying that Inspector Rudge is a suspect I had not even considered him you know what I will make
0: no confirmations nor deny miles. So I'm scared. See you then.